your favorite Christmas movie? Uh, my favorite movie, or rather show, is uh, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, I grew up with it, so it has sentimental value, but I, I love the jazz music, I love the animation, but most of all, I love the message of the show because the plot revolves around Charlie Brown trying to figure out what the meaning of Christmas is. And the climax comes when he cries out in despair, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And then Linus says, I do, Charlie Brown, and, and then Linus proceeds to recite Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14, and that's a historical account about the angels who announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds near Bethlehem. And Linus doesn't need to uh, explain those verses because what the angels say at the very end of that passage uh, communicates what the true meaning of Christmas is. Over the years, it's been our habit here at Grace Fellowship Church to gather on Christmas Eve and sing the Christmas story together. Uh, and to hear a short message about the meaning of Christmas. And I've tended to choose passages like Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 about the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus. And whenever I do that, we hear about the true meaning of Christmas from angels and wise men and shepherds and godly men and women who were looking for the Savior God would send. But this Christmas Eve, I want you to hear about the true meaning of Christmas from someone else. You see, the baby in the manger grew up to be a man, and during his ministry, he said on multiple occasions what the true meaning of Christmas was. During his ministry, there are a number of occasions where Jesus tells people why he came into the world and was born of Mary, uh, and I want to take you to one of those tonight. Uh, this evening, I want you to hear about the true meaning of Christmas from Jesus himself. Now, you're going to, what you're going to hear Jesus say tonight, it comes in the context of an argument between the disciples that He intervenes to settle, and this is all happening a couple weeks before He's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. So, He's making His uh, final journey up to Jerusalem to be crucified, and according to Matthew, uh, this is what happened. You can read about it in the second page of your bulletin. We printed the verses I'm going to read tonight. They are Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Follow along with me uh, in your bulletin or in a Bible, if you would, please. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Him. And He said to her, What do you wish? She said to Him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered them, uh, Do you know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? The brothers said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Tonight, I want to focus our thoughts around three points, that when Jesus came in the world, He didn't come into the world to be served. Instead, He came to serve all of us, and the primary way He served all of us was by giving His life 
in our place. Uh, <clears throat> now, as we lead up to why Jesus said this, what provoked Him to say this, let me just say a few moments, uh, just say a few words about what happened uh, here. Uh, the mother of James and John, her name was Salome. We learn from other gospel accounts her name was Salome, and she's actually a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, previous, you can read about this in Matthew 19, Jesus had promised the disciples, the twelve that followed Him, that in the renewal of all things, when He reigns on His glorious throne and when they're resurrected, they will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, what Salome is doing here, it is an act of faith. She believes that Jesus' kingdom will come, and she's trying to help her sons get the places of preeminence in that kingdom. But, as you could see, even from her relationship there, it, it, there's also a power play going on here. Uh, uh, Salome and James and John are playing on the affections of Jesus for His mother. They're playing on the fact that you know, He's obligated because they're extended family to look out for them, and so they ask for these preeminent positions in His coming kingdom. And I won't go into the nuances of everything that happens there, but you, you can see Jesus says, well, no, those, I don't assign those. That's my Father in heaven who does that. So you would think it would be case closed. The problem is the other disciples overheard it, and they're indignant. And they're indignant because they're men of ambition as well, and they wanted those positions. And so Jesus takes it as a teachable moment to gather all of them together and teach them about greatness in His kingdom. You see, in His kingdom... Uh, greatness is different than it is in the world. Um, worldly paths to greatness, uh, they're not adaptable to God's kingdom. Greatness in His kingdom is achieved through self-giving and self-sacrifice. And so, Jesus is not just teaching this to them, by the way. He's not just teaching them this with authority as their teacher. He also is going to model it. He modeled it with His entire life He's going to model it with His death. In fact, He says, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Now, when Jesus says in verse 28, when He uses that title, Son of Man, Son of Man is a messianic title from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, about a Savior God would send into the world. And in the gospel accounts, this is Jesus' favorite designation for Himself as the promised Messiah when he's speaking about himself in the third person. So understand, he's not talking about someone else here. He's talking about himself when he talks about the Son of Man. And he says, first of all, that he did not come into the world to be served. Now, when Jesus speaks about coming into the world, he talks about it in a way that you and I can't talk about coming into the world. We didn't choose to come into the world. We didn't choose when and where and to whom we would be born to, but Jesus did. According to John's gospel, uh, Jesus dwelled with God as God from eternity past. He added, at the right time, He added humanity to His divine nature and was born through a virgin to fulfill prophecy. His adoptive human father, Joseph, named Him Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of a Hebrew name, which means Yahweh saves, and He was named that because when He grew up, He would save His people from their sins. And He had to be born as a baby. He had to go through the process of growing up to identify with us in our humanity. But long before He became truly human, while remaining truly God, 
He, he had lived with the Father from eternity past. And so when, he said, when you hear Jesus say things in the gospel accounts like, for this reason I've come into the world, understand he's talking about coming into the world in a way none of us uh, can, uh, can talk like. He chose to come into the world, and he didn't have to come. He was under no obligation, and he came anyway. And when he came, he didn't come to be served. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. If anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus. According to John's gospel, the Son of God was the member of the Trinity through whom all things were created. Uh, You and I and the cosmos we live in was all made by God the Son. And so, when He came into the world, if anyone had a right to be served, it was Him. But He didn't come to be served. And even His birth points to that. If He had come to be served, He wouldn't be put in a feeding trough in a barn on the night of His birth. If He had come to be served, the gospel records would be very different with what He did and said while He was here. He didn't come to be served, but instead, He came to serve all of us. And when you read the gospel accounts, you find that Jesus' entire life was a life of service. And there's one story about His service that stands out above all the rest, uh, in my opinion. It's in John chapter 13. It's uh, the night of the Last Supper. The night of the Last Supper, before they sit down to have that supper together, Jesus takes the place of the lowest household servant and washes the feet of the disciples. He even washes the feet of Judas and interacts with Judas in a very loving, warm way, such that uh, when He says to the disciples later on that evening that one of them will betray Him, They don't suspect Judas because Jesus is getting along with everyone. He washes all of their feet. But when he comes to Peter, Peter objects because this honestly looks ridiculous. This man, this is Jesus, the great healer and prophet and teacher. He doesn't wash people's feet. We find someone else to do that. And so he objects. And what Jesus says to Peter when he objects is this, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And in the same way, if we don't receive by faith the service Jesus rendered for us, we have no part with Him. Uh, This is in the same vein. I think the first song we sang was Joy to the World, right? And in that song, there's a line, let earth receive her king. And you have the same thing here in verse 28. The exhortation, the primary application of this passage isn't that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we should serve others. That is a true application, but that's secondary because first, we have to receive the king and the way that he served us. Um, He came and served us by becoming a ransom for us. In fact, if you were to ask the question, how did Jesus come and serve all of us? Well, there's multiple answers to that question. There's more than one way in which He served all of us. But in this passage, He points to one way primarily He served us, and that was giving His life as a ransom for many. Lest the disciples think that His death in Jerusalem is nothing more than an accident or the ultimate example of love, He now tells them that He will give His life as a ransom for many. And I bring that up because in the prophecies He gave His disciples before He went up to Jerusalem, He talked about the fact that He would die and rise again, but He never told them why He would die. And here, He finally tells them why. It's to give His life a ransom for many. Now, that Greek word 
for ransom here is lutron. It means the price that you had to pay in order to redeem a slave. And the other key word in what Jesus says is the Greek word that we translate as for. In Greek, it's the word anti. And in this context, it means in the place of. And that's important because the word anti introduces the substitutionary nature of His ransoming death. In the prophecies Jesus gave His disciples, it was clear that He was going up to Jerusalem to die. But now why He's going to die, the reason why is given. He tells them the reason He has to die. He's trading His life for many. He's dying in the place of many. He will make Himself a ransom payment on behalf of many. And the ransom is not being paid to Satan. It's being paid to God the Father uh, to pay God's Uh, the Father's just, appropriate, equitable, good, righteous anger at us over our sin and rebellion. And so, notice that Jesus also, He's not just trading His life for one other life. Uh, What He's doing here is trading His life for many. The, The word many is set in contrast grammatically in this verse to the one who will die. His death will take the place of many deaths. His ransom will purchase freedom for many, the death of the one will result in eternal life for billions of people. So perhaps this is the best way to say it. It's true when Christians like you and I say that Jesus died for us, but according to this verse, He died in the place of us. This is what Jesus Himself says about why He came into the world. He came into the world to live a perfect life so that He could offer Himself as an acceptable ransom in the place of many sinners. That's the meaning of Christmas. And here's where we need to make an important clarification as Christians about Christmas as it relates to the good news of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness we can have through the death and resurrection of Christ. The fact is, the Christmas story is not the gospel. According to Paul, the gospel is the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christmas lays the foundation for the gospel. And the reason why is because the eternal Son of God, who dwelled with the Father from eternity past, He couldn't come and die on the cross if He didn't have a human body. That's why He had to come. In heaven, the eternal Son of God was immortal. He couldn't die. He couldn't suffer the pains of death. So he became a man, born of a virgin, born under the law so that he could fulfill the law in his life and then die for our sins. And when he added humanity to his divine nature, it was a spectacular miracle on God's part. I mean, just think about it. How can the infinite God become a finite human being and have a human nature and a divine nature that aren't commingled but are still together in one person, uh, you know, located together in the focal point of Jesus of Nazareth? It's an amazing miracle that God did in sending His Son. And God the Son had to become a man so that He could live a perfect life for us, die on the cross, and rise again for our redemption. Without that, there is no ransom from sin. Without that, we have no salvation. If Jesus wasn't truly a man, my sins can't be forgiven because my sins are the sins of a man. I need a man to come and represent me. And the Christmas story tells us how that happened. And so, 
We could say it this way. Christmas is not the gospel, no, but it is foundational for the gospel story because it's where God became a man so that He could die as a ransom in our place. The glory of the birth of Jesus can only be grasped when you understand the reason He had to come. Our situation was so desperate that this was the only way. We needed a ransom. And the good news of Christmas is that there has been born for you a Savior who grew up to become a ransom in our place. Let's pray.